We're continuing this series today that we've been calling Rethink Church. This is part five. What we've said so far is that the church started, the church was launched 2,000 years ago, not as an institution, not as a building. It really launched as a movement that about 120 people went out into the streets of Jerusalem a couple thousand years ago, and they said, God has done something unique among us. And like right over there, right outside those walls over there, a man named Jesus was crucified. And right over there outside those walls, he rose from the dead. And we have seen him. We didn't hear about it. We saw him. This didn't happen like 100 years ago or 500 years ago. This happened two months ago right over there. And these people flooded the streets and the Jews in Jerusalem listened to their message and embraced it. And within a few weeks, thousands of people, thousands of Jewish people in the very city where these events took place, within the time frame in which these events took place, embraced the idea that Jesus was the Christ, the promised Messiah, and the Son of the living God. In fact, that's the statement they camped out on, that He was the Son of God, He was who He claimed to be, and He'd risen from the dead. Then people from outside Jerusalem began to flood Jerusalem, and all of a sudden what began as a simple message became a movement. And this movement began to disrupt the, the very fragile balance of power between, uh, the, between Roman power and those that ran the temple. And they came together, and they actually began to persecute these followers of the way. They weren't called Christians yet. It wasn't uh, called Christianity then. It was kind of a sect. It was kind of a knockoff, a spinoff, a cult connected to Judaism. And the, that's how they saw it. And the Jewish leaders didn't want to have anything to do with that. So they began to persecute these followers of the way. And the number one persecutor was a man named Saul of Tarsus. And he began to organized sort of an official inquisition to find these followers of the way, bring them to Jerusalem, have them imprisoned, and in some cases put to death. And as he did this, right in the middle of the story, he becomes a follower of the very Jesus that he didn't believe in. The very cult that he was trying to basically put out of business, he became the, like a ringleader, all right? And we know him as the Apostle Paul. And he becomes the number one spokesperson for this new thing that eventually, eventually became known as the church. Then as we continue the story, <coughs> he began to travel around uh, outside of Judea and share with Romans and Greek-speaking people that God had done something unique in their time, in their lifetime. Even though the Romans and the Greeks had like a pantheon of gods, he would say to them, in spite of what you've always believed, the one true living God has done something unique in your midst. He sent his son to address the problem that Zeus couldn't address, that Jupiter couldn't address. God had sent his son into the world to address your sin, your failure, the fact that you've broken his laws, and he sent his son to die as an atonement for your sin. And then Gentiles began to embrace this sort of Jewish knockoff sect called the Way, which would eventually be called Christianity. And that's how the whole thing started. And it just began to kind of continue to roll out and roll up to different parts of the world. And suddenly people from all different nationalities all over the known Roman world began to embrace Jesus as their Savior. And there's always been a group of people that understood that this is a mission. 
It's not about a building. It's not about a liturgy. It's not about a style. It's not about anything like that. It's about this simple idea that transformed Jerusalem a couple thousand years ago, that God has done something unique in our midst. He sent his son as a payment for our sin, and he has raised him from the dead. Since that time, so many uh, incredible things have been done in the name of Jesus. Hospitals and the very idea of hospitals have been built all over the world in the name of Jesus. Millions of people have been fed in the name of Jesus. Millions of people have been housed and given homes in the name of Jesus. Hundreds of thousands, millions of people, millions of students, children have been sent to school in the name of Jesus. Slavery was done away with in England in the name of Jesus and consequently fueled the abolition movement here in this country that eventually did away with slavery. And church leaders in many cases, especially in England and even in the United States, were behind doing away with that awful blight on our society and our culture. Missionaries have risked their lives and given their lives in order to take this incredible message, the pure message of the gospel, without all the churchiness and without all the stuff that polluted and diluted the message, just the raw message of the gospel to people all over the world. So today, as we gather... There are people gathering all over the world in the name of Jesus. And this movement continues to move in spite of the formality of so many churches, in spite of the fact that so many churches have become insider-focused. There's always been this group of people within the church that understands that this is transcultural. This is transgenerational. It's for all nations. It's for all people. There's always been a group of people that has embraced and made sure that, this, that the church was handed off to the next generation and handed off in a way that it would continue to be handed off generation after generation after generation. And that brings us to today, to us. <clears throat> Remember a few weeks ago we looked at Acts 15 where the first century church was struggling with some big ideas like who is the church for and who gets in Is the church for church people or is the church for unchurched people? Uh, Is the church for people who can follow the rules or is it for people who just need to know the forgiveness of God? And remember James, a brother of Jesus, he stood up in that first church meeting and he said this in Acts 15 verse 19 where he said, it is my judgment therefore that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. In other words, he said, let's not complicate it. Let's not make it too formal. Let's keep it simple. Let's make it as easy as possible, as accessible as possible. Let's make sure the bottom rungs are on the ladder. Let's make it as easy as possible for people who are turning to God to understand that God has done something unique in our midst and for our sake. I went back this week and I read some of my notes from our leadership meetings um, in the early days of faith community. And here's one I wrote in the summer of 1997, just the summer that we launched this church, just a few weeks after we had our very first gathering. And I wrote this in, for one of our leadership meetings. <clears throat> I said, we have not been commissioned to build a church. Our purpose is to lead people into a growing, life-changing, value-shuffling relationship with Jesus Christ. The church is simply a means to an end. We've been called to make disciples. The church is a means to that end. The church is about the lost because the mission is not to plant a church. It is to make disciples, to bring people from unbelief to belief and into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. So in the summer of 1997, we decided that to reach people that nobody else is reaching, we would need to do some things that nobody else seemed to be doing. 
So when you read the book of Acts, the reason the message of Jesus survived the first century, the reason the message of Jesus escaped the first century, the reason it survived the destruction of the temple, the reason it survived the destruction of the Roman Empire is because there was a group of people that was so extraordinarily bold and so extraordinarily confident. They were willing to say things and do things in ways that had never been said or done before, and they just wouldn't back down. We set out 23 years ago. We just wanted to be a part of that group. We wanted to be a part of that movement. We wanted to be part of the extension of what happened a couple thousand years ago when the local church began. And we decided that if we're going to create a church that unchurched people like to be a part of, we're going to have to try some new things. We're going to have to take some risks. We're going to have to try some things that may fail. We're going to have to do some things that nobody else is doing. We're going to have to do away with the hierarchies and the policies and the politics and some formalities. We're going to kill some sacred cows. What worked last year might not work this year, and we were okay with that. We made biblical community a priority. Uh, It wasn't enough for us to just come in on Sundays and go to a church service together. We wanted to do life together, so we got real intentional about being involved in one another's lives. So, Now, as we approach the end of 2020, after eight months of unprecedented challenges, uh, here we are, as a church in a pretty healthy position, dreaming about what's next for us and realizing that we are being given a huge opportunity. So now we have to ask the question, what do we do with this opportunity? Honestly, Sometimes I wish in my personality I could find a way to just be content with coasting for a while. I mean, I wish I could just like, couldn't we just like coast, okay? We're pretty comfortable, seem to be healthy. Can we just coast for a while? We've done some good stuff here. Let's just keep doing that. Uh, We've asked people to serve and give and sacrifice and get uncomfortable. So maybe we could just coast for a while. It's not in my personality to sit on that. And I know for us as a church, the answer for that is no. I know better than to ask God if we have permission to just coast. And here's why. And here's the thing I want to get to today. If you don't really get anything else, I say, because influence is a stewardship. Influence is a stewardship. If you have influence... It's like having something in your hand, and you have to decide what to do with it. We've all seen people leverage their influence for things they should not leverage their influence for, but either way, influence is a stewardship. And by God's grace and by, because of your hard work and because of your generosity and because you've been willing to try new things, we as a church have been given an awesome opportunity in our community. And to be good stewards we got to leverage that in a way that is completely God-honoring. So we're not going to rest. We're not going to coast. We're not going to just pat ourselves on the back. Our prayer is, God, now that you have uniquely positioned us, now that we have all this opportunity, what do we do with this? And how do we leverage this in a way that when our time is over, when we hand the baton of leadership of the local church to the next generation, which, by the way, doesn't freak me out, okay? We need to do this sooner rather than later to en- enable and engage and empower the next generation of leadership in the church. And we better make sure that the church is in far better shape than when it was handed to us. So how do we take advantage of this unique opportunity at this time? How can we be good stewards 
of what God has called us to and allowed us to steward as church leaders. This is not a me thing. This is a we thing. So as we move forward into this next part of our time together and our responsibility and our opportunity as a church, we need this to be an all skate, okay? We need, we need all of you all in. Because again, if we could just, I don't know, if you could spend a week in my shoes and if you could see what I see and if you could see you the way that I see you, I'm telling you, you'd be so extraordinarily excited about what we could do together to make a difference in our community and in the world that we live in. But for us to do that, everybody has to get involved at some level. Now, at the beginning of the series a few weeks ago, we talked about the boldness of the early church. And I asked you to pray about being bold. And we prayed together, the very first prayer of the very first church. God, help us to be bold. Exhibit your power among us in such a way that we would be bold. That was the prayer of the first century church. And if ever there was a time in the life of our church that we need to be bold and take risks and try new things, it's now. So we need you to do some things. We need you to do some things at a level you've never done them before. So for those of you who've been on the periphery and you've been enjoying the show and you've got your parking space, all it's kind of like reserved for you. No, people know not to park in your parking space. And you know where to sit so you can get out quick. And you've figured out when the last song is playing and you can get your coat on and run for the parking lots and beat all the other church people to lunch. You've got it all worked out. Listen, we need you to be involved. Because we believe, listen, we believe everybody spends eternity somewhere. We believe that Jesus is the hope of the world, and we believe the church isn't a building. It's not an institution. It's a movement, and we need you to move with us. And if you're not willing to move with us, if you're not willing to bring something to the table for the sake of those unchurched family members, unchurched friends, unchurched co-workers, unchurched neighbors, then I would say, feel free... Ah, I get in trouble every time I say this. Feel free to check out some other churches. You can even watch us online like for free for the rest of your life. And you can uh, even give online if you feel guilty enough. And I'm being a little, a little facetious, but, and this is tricky to do on video. But listen, this is the opportunity. I'm just telling you, this is the opportunity we have as a healthy, vision-oriented, mission-driven church in Down East Maine at the end of 2020. We can't miss this. And it's not because we're special. It's not because we're better than anybody else. It's not because we're smarter or slicker. The question is, are we going to be good stewards with what we've been entrusted with, or are we just going to sit back and be content? So here's what we need you to do. We need you to be bold in four areas. Number one, we need you to be bold in your invitations. We need you to be bold in your invitations. Do you know what I mean by that? I mean... There are people that you've thought about inviting to church and you still haven't done it. It's time to ramp up your boldness, and I'll, I'll tell you why. It's not so we can get bigger. Uh, we have critical mass. We can survive. It's because we need you to experience 
church, our church, through the eyes and ears of a person that's far from God, that doesn't go to church. We need you to do that because if at least every few weeks you experience this through the eyes and ears of someone who doesn't attend church, doesn't consider themselves a church person, who's far from God, then you're going to continue to help us evaluate ourselves as a church, as a church that is attractive uh, to unchurched people. And if you quit inviting, listen, if it just becomes the church people, we will slowly, over time, turn and become a very, very insider congregation. And no matter how big we ever become, we'll no longer be on mission. So we need you to be bold inviters. We need you to take risks in your inviting. And you need, you know what, I mean, you, you need that because it'll grow your faith, it'll stretch your faith. There are people who someday you'll have the joy of seeing them maybe pass through the waters of baptism. They may even mention your name when they, when they do their baptism video. And whether they mention your name or not, you are going to be in tears of what God used you to accomplish. So since the very beginning, we've, we've called this invest and invite, and invest and invite. We haven't mentioned it in a while. It's been really hard these last few months to invite people. It's even challenging to invest in their lives right now. I get that. Uh, it's been ch- a challenging year that way. <clears throat> but just be- keep being creative in your investing in the lives of the people around you that you love, the people that you hunt with, the people that you play golf with, the people whose kids play sports with your kids, the people you work with. And, and then keep investing. And then when it's appropriate, you invite them maybe to join you on a Sunday where we will take responsibility for starting the conversation in terms of their relationship with God. So for some of you, you just need to be a little bit bolder. You need to be bold in terms of your invitations, not simply for the sake of the person that you're inviting, but so that we as a congregation, and maybe you personally at the individual level, that we would stay on task with what God has called us to do. Secondly, we need you to be bold in your volunteering. Be bold in your volunteering. Before the pandemic, we had about 65% of our congregation serving on a volunteer team somewhere in our church ministry, which is awesome. Most pastors would die to have that kind of percentage. But that means there are still a few of you who've been sitting on the sidelines. And you know, again, you get your routine all worked out. Everybody serves you. They serve your kids. They serve your teenagers. They make sure you get parked and the lights are on and the heat is on and the sound is on and everything works because like, you're busy. I understand that. But you understand that every single person, every single Sunday, under normal circumstances, first of all, it takes, you are, you are served by at least 30 people on Sunday. 30 busy people. It takes over 30 people, 30 volunteers to make this thing happen every Sunday. So if you've been sitting on the sidelines, it's time to get off the sidelines and get into the game. We need you to be bold in your volunteering which means maybe you need to consider volunteering in an area that you've never considered volunteering before. We'll train you, all right? We'll, we'll, we'll explore it with you. We just need your information. We have help wanted forms in the lobby today. And, and you know what? Uh, just try it. You might like it. You might fall in love with it. You're going to connect with people that may become lifelong friends. But either way, as we continue to multiply 
we need you to give back in areas that maybe uh, have been given to you in terms of service in this church. Now, we're not going to throw you into a classroom of middle schoolers and say, you know, good luck, we're locking the door, see you in an hour. Because here's the deal, we love our kids too much to do that. I'm telling you, this is so important, this is so huge, and there's a reason why we use the terminology we do around here. There's a reason why we, we never use the words childcare. because listen, we don't babysit your kids here. We don't babysit children. Our goal in every children's environment and youth environment is to place an anchor in their heart that's going to be so deep that when they hit middle school and they hit high school, they can only drift so far I'm so proud of the people who serve in our children's ministries. I'm so grateful for them. But let me just say this. I am so grateful for the men who serve in our children's ministries. Because our men understand that they're not just taking care of children. They are eyeball to eyeball with some little boys and some little girls. In some cases that don't have healthy relationships with the men in their lives. And they understand that this is as missional as anything that we do. They understand that they're going to be the person who is the, maybe they're going to be the person who's the first person to share some of these stories that will go with these children for the rest of their lives. And you know what's crazy? <clears throat> it hasn't even been that hard to get men involved. Because the men in our congregation understand the role and the responsibility of men in our culture, and they're willing to sit on the floor in a circle with little kids and pour their lives into these little ones, not just for information, but the fact that there's a man in the room who's showing them the love of their heavenly Father. We have incredible volunteers. For those of you who've been sitting on the fence for a while, Enjoying the show, throwing a few bucks in the offering box, talking about how great our church is, but you've never taken this step to really get involved. Maybe a few weeks ago, you missed the volunteer barbecue because you haven't been involved as a volunteer. Listen, now's the time. And honestly, we've stretched our volunteers really thin these last few months, doing two or three services a Sunday. It's been a lot on our volunteers. This might be the time for you to step up and get involved because we got to be good stewards of this amazing opportunity that God has given us. So be bold in your inviting. Be bold in your volunteering. Number three, be bold in your giving. So let me just say something about this really clearly. <clears throat> we need you to be bold in your giving, not because we need your money. Because I think some people walk in and they're like, good grief, they don't need my money. Look around. they got everything they need. I have some good news for you. We don't need your money. But if we're going to build a church and train leaders and engage more and more people in ministry, it's going to cost money. And if we are simply content to have uh, a healthy church and, and pay the staff and pay the energy bill, uh, we're doing fine. But if we're going to leverage this opportunity that God has given us, it's going to cost us money. The good news is the money is in the bank. It's just in your bank. And if you're a participant in this church or a volunteer or you want to become a percentage giver, I mean, pick any percent, 5%, 3%, just start doing it. Start giving it like New Testament Christians did in the very beginning. I love it when people visit here and they're like, wait, they never took up an offering. You know, we've never taken up an offering. 
we, by putting an offering plate or a donation bucket in front of anyone. From the very beginning, we thought that was off-putting to unchurched people. So for 23 years, you've been faithful and generous to support the mission of this church by dropping your tithes and your offerings in those little boxes in the lobby or by utilizing the P.O. box, and now many of you by donating regularly online. And for those of you who haven't had a chance to give because you haven't been here in person for a few months and you've kind of forgot about the P.O. box and the online giving, this is your reminder. But for those of you who have faithfully supported our mission with your financial generosity and your sacrifices, thank you. Fourth area, we need you to be bold in your prayers. Be bold in your prayers. And I kind of want to suggest specifically how we want you to pray. First of all, you can continue to pray, you know, thank you for the day, help us get through vacation safe, help me make an A on my test, whatever. You, you can pray all that. We can pray selfish prayers. We can pray for all the sick people. And after you're done with all of that, the prayers that you always pray, we need you to pray some bold prayers. We need you to think about the person that you know at work, in your neighborhood, that you can't imagine ever darkening the door of a church. We need you to pray for him or her every single day. Like every single day, pray for them by name. We need you to pray boldly. There's a chance nobody else is praying for that person. Let's pray bold prayers for the middle schoolers and high schoolers in our community. Bold prayers that, God, you would raise up the next generation of church leaders, that you'd raise up the next generation of social justice reformers, that you would raise up the next generation of political leaders, that you'd raise up the next generation of artists and cultural architects from this generation of students, that this would be a generation of students that says, I get it. I'm not leaving church after high school. I get it. I want to be a follower of Jesus all the way through, through college and into adulthood, that God would do something unique in the hearts and lives of the teenagers in our city and as a local church. We are committed to that. So let's pray for that. We want you to pray bold prayers. Wherever you are, let's pray bold prayers. We have a short window of time. We're blessed. We have an opportunity. It's so unique. I can't even, I really can't exaggerate how unique our opportunity is. And if we want to, and we just want to leverage it for everything we can for the sake of our community. So I want to finish our time together by reading to you the final verses in the book of Acts. So I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit in the story because we're coming back to the book of Acts uh, in a couple weeks. But the book of Acts is a story of how the church begins. And this story ends, the book of Acts ends, kind of spoiler alert, with Paul in prison. He was arrested in Caesarea, spent a couple years there in Caesarea, and then they took him all the way to Rome. <clears throat> and if you want to read about that for yourself, uh, it's an incredible story in Acts 20, at the end of, uh, of Acts, especially in, in chapter 28. Um, but he gets shipwrecked there. And anyway, he gets to Rome and he, he gets there and he's put in prison, but there's nobody there to charge him for anything. They don't really know what's going on. I guess his paperwork didn't follow him or whatever. So he got there before the charges did. So the officials said, we're not even sure what you're charged with, but we know we shouldn't let you go. So they put him in a home and they chained him, either his wrists or his ankles, uh, to something, maybe a soldier. We don't really know. But for two years, he sits in this home waiting for his charges to show up because they don't even know what he's charged for and they're not in a hurry. But since he claimed to be a Roman citizen, they won't just let him go. So three days after he gets there, he sends word out to all the Jewish leaders in Rome uh, to come visit him. And they show up at, um, at this house and they say, the reason we're here is we've heard uh, so many 
bad things about this sect, this cult, this knockoff. We know you're the ringleader, so tell us, what's this all about? And Paul's like, glad you asked. And Paul, in chains, begins to preach the gospel to these religious leaders in Rome. And he watches their eyes and he looks at their body language and he realizes they're not getting it. They're not buying it. They think he's crazy. Uh, just like they've heard, he's crazy. They think there, there's just no way this could be true. No wonder this guy's in chains. No wonder he's under arrest. And at the very end of the book of Acts, Luke writes for us the final statement, the final message in the history of the church that's recorded for us. And I want you to listen to how Paul ends his message. And when I read these words, I'm like, how did do, how do he know? I mean, this is just a handful of people, people who are scattered around. They have no influence. They have no wealth. They have no leverage. They're up against the Jewish system. They're up against the Roman Empire. How did he know? Here's what he says. This is his conclusion. Acts 28, verse 28. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. He says to the Jewish people, God has done something in your midst, and you've rejected it. You've rejected your Messiah, but God is not finished. God is sending the message to the Gentiles. And it's, and it's like a prophecy. And he's like, I'm giving you guys kind of a, a heads up here while we're here together in Rome. The Gentiles are going to listen, and they're going to embrace it, and it's going to circle the globe, and, and here we are. <laughs> Final verses, Acts 28, 30. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. And what did he talk about when they showed up? Verse 31. He proclaimed the kingdom of God, and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like, wait, 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 Paul. The Lord Jesus Christ that allowed you to be shipwrecked and arrested and, and brought to Rome and chained to a Roman guard. I mean, what has God done for you lately? No pity party? No? Where is God when bad things happen to good people? You know, and I'm good people. So like, you know, I, I'm a missionary. No, none of that. Verse 31, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all, you can say it with me, boldness, with all boldness and without hindrance. In chains, knowing that at any moment they could take him down the road and cut off his head, which is eventually what happened, with boldness, without hindrance. Oh, he's released, by the way, but then he's rearrested, and Nero had him executed, and the primary spokesman for the church silenced, but not the church. The church was God's idea. And we've been invited to be a part of it for our generation. So let's pray bold prayers. Let's give boldly. Let's serve boldly. Let's invite boldly. Because we've been invited to be a part of this thing that God has begun and will continue to the end of the age.